We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. See, Muscarillies, how's everyone doing? It's episode 50 of the pod. Who'd have thunk? Wow. Like almost a year later, we finally hit 50 episodes. Um, but you know, better than some of these other like podcasters out there who've been podcasting for like years, not going to shout out names. They definitely don't know who we are, but we Can are we podcast in, shading people. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. We are actually the best podcasters in the world. And if you listen to anyone else, um, stop listening to them and only listen to us because we are the only podcast that matters. <laughs> Emma's drinking some cold brew or some shit over there. I um, am coming down from a caffeine tweak. How, how are you, Kate? I have a caffeine. Um, I'm now bulletproof. Uh, oh. I got some cold brew by bulletproof. And so I've been tweaking um, in that regard. It's not really hitting. I've actually found that after drinking it, I do fall asleep. However, that's not the case now. I feel wound up. Um, it's back to being summer in New York City. Yeah. Um, sweating again. I think I tweeted something about like, you know, another day of me wearing the same exact outdoor voices, tennis or exercise skirt and sports bra because the weather refuses to dip below 84. I wore a turtleneck today and I was like, I know I'm going to sweat, but I was like, you know what? I need it to be fall. I'm, I can't do summer anymore. But I also realized that like, I don't want to wear pants. Like I want to wear shorts and like skirts as long as possible, but I want to be able to wear long sleeves. Yes. Yes. We need Christian girl fall. 
Um, girl fall. Amen. Yeah. I, you know, I want some leaves. I want some foraging. I want some apples. I do not want the pants either. I wore pants like one time this past week when it was a colder day and just don't love that for the body this morning. <laughs> yeah. Don't love it. I, would, I was putting on pants today. I was like, yeah, no, we're just gonna put on the same exact shorts that we've been wearing like for the past four months. Yeah. We don't need to really know if our body exists in the ether. Um, I need to make some more body dysmorphia memes because you know, I, whenever I search cursed images into Pinterest for some meme imagery, I there's really some ripe content for something about, you know, not knowing what you look like ever. There's always a good, just any reaction photo kind of really, truly represents what it feels like when you look into the mirror and you're like, damn, what? Damn, other people have to see me, I guess. Mm, sucks for y'all. <laughs> Um, um let's see what else um merch I guess we'll do kind of like announcements yes merch is coming please um, don't kill us like Instagram DMs are not like relax y'all so once again if you listen to the podcast and you're not in the community platform Geneva I don't know how to emphasize this enough it's in the podcast description episode of every episode and if you're in Geneva you're probably like Kate shut the fuck up y'all do not want to see how messy our DMs are we got people confused we will post the merch obviously on the meme page once it's released. And then also within Geneva, you kind of get more, you get more leeway. Like you get to help us decide what the podcast episodes are about, what the merch is about. You get to meet other people. You get cool food suggestions. So we definitely um, just want to know, like we want to simplify the merch and just kind of give you guys very like tailored, like a limited selection of products. Also, I think it's like better to have like a few standout pieces as opposed to like a lot of just like meh items yeah so the hottest bitch in the laundry section whatever the t-shirt is called that'll be back we'll probably do a hat um but also we we so colors um sweatshirt yeah it's fall for a lot of us um you know we want to know because you know you you guys are the ones who are buying the merch so yeah you know emma and i are going to decide at the end of the day but i think we will give some variety for the girlies and once it is launched, make sure you actually get it because who knows? Who knows what's going to be next? Um, I posted this in Geneva, but I guess this will be announcement to the louder, po- the larger podcast community. Em and I are going on tour, baby. Um, not officially, but we do have a live podcast event, which is crazy. We haven't even been podcasting for a year and we're somehow somehow people said we're entering our live podcasting era i'm nervous excited um somehow people said these two girls they get to be in front of hey, people. we finally get microphones we finally will be able to talk into a microphone wow so we better have microphones um so there's I'm gonna hyped. be okay from the live podcast event i need someone to get a photo of us with our microphones and mm-hmm. then i will make memes out of us like yes. make memes out of that photo of us um because that is some ripe content. But yeah, who, you know, we're finally getting platformed. Who decided that we get platformed? About but damn time. <laughs> we're going to be having an event in New York City. There will be details to come. They're not finalized. Um, I feel like there's an ant crawling down my leg, but that is also just, <laughs> sorry, I was just paranoid. Was, what the fuck's oh, well, my legs are like sweating. And like, I like literally feel like sweat on my legs. <laughs> um, so back to the live podcast event, uh, you know, when we're not talking about sweat and ants on our legs, <laughs> um, it's going to be at an undisclosed location with an undisclosed sponsor. Emma and I are going to be there. There's going to be some sort of community activation. There's going to be exclusively designed merch that's going to be super sexy by a designer of one of the companies. So it'll be a November on the weekend. Yes. If you live in the tri-state area, definitely make your way through. It will be worthwhile. Um, Walking now. You know, if you, yeah, walk, take the Amtrak, like you do not want to miss this. It'll probably be, you know, maybe another live event will come um, from this again. 
but know, this also could be a one and done thing. So um, if you're dying to see us IRL and, you know, dying to hear us talk, whatever nonsense comes out of our mouth that day, um, you know, definitely make yourself free the month of November for yeah. us. It's going to be at Saturday or Sunday. So we'll, we'll keep you guys just close. And then, you know, Emma and I will turn 23 and then it'll be a year of podcasting and like, whoa, crazy, wow, crazy. Time flies when you are a wellness God. Um, so today's pod. So, yeah. Today's pod. I was about to introduce us to today's pod. Um, so listeners listen up. Um, I think we were, there was like a podcast previously that we kind of touched on like food technology. Then we were like, Nah, let's make this its own episode. So today is about food technology, kind of all the new, you know, gadgets, gadgets, et cetera, technologies that are kind of being utilized in the food industry, whether that's like 3D printing, et cetera. And like sort of like the reasonings why it's becoming more like prevalent and mainstream and why there's a lot of like focus. I think especially like in the in the VC investor, you know, world, a lot of like um money kind of going to these areas. Are they necessary? Um like what are they trying to solve and tackle? And I also think too, with this podcast episode, thinking about if we were to flip over everything to investing in these new technological solutions, a lot of these do relate to climate change and other like political issues, thinking about redistribution and equity, um, you know, who's going to get the impossible burger, who's going to get all these fun things. Is this even the right way to go down the rabbit hole? Or do we just need to revert back to ways of living before capitalism and everyone made stuff bad, right? So there's kind of a, um, a tension at the center of this podcast thinking about like, technology can be good. Yeah, sure. Also has been bad many times. So we're going to get into all that Emma said. Um, I think it's a good episode. We like when I think, you know, Emma and I put our little like professor hat on for the CMOS girlies because, you know, unless you listen to podcasts about a lot of world issues or something, you're probably not exposed to them. I mean, I'm not waking up thinking about lab grown meat when I wake up or like, I don't think most people are. (laughs) Yeah. Or even just, I think that's one good way to be exposed to different political issues that you might not, you know, know the intersections between food and climate change, which we've done in like a whole series on, or like, for me, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts about like Bitcoin, you know? Um, But I was listening to something about cryptocurrency because it's super bad for the environment. So hope that these podcast episodes kind of give you guys a way into learning about other systemic issues because while it's fun and buzzy to talk about supplements all day you know there's there's bigger things than taking a probiotic every day always so we're gonna we're gonna come on back and we're gonna get into the food tech stuff you know sc muscularies are serious about our omega-3 fatty acids and sustainability right introducing today's new sponsor goodfish goodfish is an upcycled salmon skin snack sustainably sourced from bristol bay alaska What's an upcycled snack, you may ask? It's a great way to reduce food waste to help tackle climate change. Goodfish upcycles from sustainably caught wild Alaskan sockeye salmon from Bristol Bay, Alaska. The health benefits of goodfish are major. Like each bag includes 10 grams of full BCAA fish protein, 800 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids, and 2,600 milligrams of marine collagen. Goodfish even has seven different flavors. Our favorite is the miso teriyaki for the hottest macrobiotic bowl ever. You can use code CMOS15 for 15% off goodfish.com. Okay, CMOS girlies, get out your notebooks if you want to take notes. Otherwise, don't. Um, Someone actually said they do take notes. And I, whoever said that in Geneva, I forget. Um, But 
we appreciate you. We hear you. We see you. Thank you. Thank you for truly valuing our wisdom. Um, so I think like kind of like a general introduction to like why a few technologies becoming more prevalent or more mainstream or why like there's a lot of new products that are being made from different, you know, in a lab, et cetera. It's really because, you know, the current food system that we know today is really kind of like under stress and it is like affected by multiple inefficiencies and inequalities, um, really because like the conventional way of growing, processing, transporting and consuming has kind of like damaged our health and like environment and granted like how we like currently farm today has kind of been like the way that it's been ever since like, you know, the green revolution, et cetera. Um, but really like our current conventional food system is like responsible for nearly like one third of global emissions and is like the main driver for, um, for deforestation. So like, when you think about that in a lot of our episodes that we've done about like food and climate change, like the food industry has like such a big impact on, you know, you know, climate change. And it also is like a great way to tackle and to kind of help mitigate those effects that we're currently experiencing in a long kind of like in a health way, you know obesity and food insecurity are both rising. A lot of people, you know, are having more access to like ultra processed foods, but a lot of people are also not being able to afford healthy foods and aren't being able to get adequate amounts. And again, also I think with like soil degradation, our soil is degrading rapidly and we could lose the world's top soil, top soil in nearly 60 years. And so with like new technologies as like, you know, the world advances and more things are created, it is kind of obvious or expected that all industries are going to change and adapt and utilize new technologies. And so if new technologies are created and deployed responsibly, we could radicalize and like really improve our food system and really like transform it and kind of have this like new, um, new era of like a food system. Um, so that's really kind of why I think all of this has been exploding and we've been hearing more and more about it. So we'll kind of get into like different technologies and then like is, you know, stuff that is like 3D printed, like healthier or more like unhealthy compared to like the real thing. Um, but the first kind of like technology or like, and we'll kind of get into, or I guess it's more of like a concept is like precision farming. And this is really kind of like an approach to improved farm management because so much like farming today does have a lot of like poor management through like the, through abusing fertilizers, like wasting water and like monocrop agriculture, which like leads to really poor soil health. And so really like focusing kind of on increasing the quality of food versus like the quantity, because really like during the green revolution, there was so much like emphasis and focus on like, you know, producing more and more quantities of stuff. And I think, you know, we have kind of surpassed that like need, obviously we need to produce like enough food to feed the world. But I think like shifting our focus more on like quality versus like quantity because we yeah. know that we can grow enough. And I think like you were saying, like the GMOs, if you look into like um, the green revolution in that era, like one of the biggest critiques of it is that it didn't address the intersecting, inter intersecting crises at the same time. Like I do mm -hmm. think that a lot of the times the issues with these big, big issues, the environmental people are not talking to the public health people, right? There's a few people that lie at the intersection between the two, but when the policy makers are not thinking about how public health, environment all intersect, you're just going to get like, you're going to get insecurity, food insecurity, or you're going to get poor health effects. So that's like one lesson I think, yeah, to learn from that era. Exactly. Um, and so like with precision farming, it's really using technology such as like artificial intelligence sensors and satellites to reduce the reliance on agrochemicals and like fertilizers and just become more efficient with like the farming process and throw. So for like a few examples, 
the use of satellite imagery and sensors can help pinpoint the exact amount of fertilizer and water needed by a crop and then like linking equipment that is designed to apply the correct amount of fertilizers if needed. So it's really kind of like taking like the farmer out of like the ritual process that we've known for years and instead kind of them using like data and being able to know like, okay, this field needs more water than this field. These, you know, whatever machines will go out and, you know, provide X amount of water and that's, and so really if kind of avoiding like overusing water, et cetera, and like other um, scarce resources. And then kind of like through specialized agrobots, they can tend to crops and take care of like the weeding, fertilizing and harvesting. And so with more precise farming methods, you're going to be guaranteed a better application of resources, which will then result in minimizing the waste of water and other scarce resources, like I said. And then there's also like soil sensors, which can help determine the health of soil. And so again, kind of like combining all of these like new technologies, there does provide the opportunity to regenerate the soil as you are reducing the use of harmful chemicals. Now, I think like the main challenge or critique of this is that, you know, it's expensive to acquire all these technologies. And it's like thinking about, you know, a lot of these farmers are caught up in like contracts with like Monsanto where like they're only allowed to use like certain like fertilizers and seeds and like can probably only farm in a very specific way. And so if you were to kind of like break away from that and really try to embrace like a new way of farming, that is a huge risk. And I think additionally too, it's like, it's kind of almost like overcomplicating. I feel like everything and it's like, you know, regenerative agriculture exists for a reason. And it's like a very like simple way of just like kind of going back to like the regular practices that our ancestors have like used for, you know, thousands of years when it comes to farming. And so I think it's like, you know, really making it almost like this like sci-fi version where it's like farming is all like, you know, about data and like the farmers just kind of like sit in like a, I don't know, bunker and just like look at computers and like press buttons for like tractors to like, you know, go and harvest certain crops. Um, but that's kind of like the first kind of like main technology that is kind of becoming more and more utilized um, with like, just like farmers. Yeah. And bouncing off that, like with um, kind of training, thinking about the labor force at least, or how technologies kind of intersect with that, it has to be a government incentive, like a government incentive for farmers to switch over to new technologies. You can't just ask like small farmers, because once again, we know it's only going to be the wealthy 1% of the, the biggest of biggest farmers who can afford the new technology. So that's one way where I think government can be the answer. I do think we live in like, you know, we live in like Reaganomics where people think like government is the problem, but no, actually it's not the problem. You need the government to regulate these sectors and, you know, produce equitable responses to it. Um, and like Emma was saying with all of this, this whole episode is kind of thinking about like the perils of technocracy, which is like, thinking about, you know, Elon Musk, instead of caring about the earth, let's all go to Mars. Okay. So who's going to Mars? Just rich white men. You know, it's not, it's not an equitable or realistic solution, or at least it's a band-aid to a different problem. You're not solving the actual issue that we treat the earth like shit and we being like rich white men. Um, the next area here with food tech is vertical farming. Now, I think this is obviously what it is where you're growing crops vertically to conserve space. Um, a lot of people like it's visually what you think it is. It is like leaves and like herbs and all that shit growing in a lab somewhere. I mean, the biggest advantage of it is that you are able to conserve space. Um, it was proposed in 1999 by a Columbia professor and it's much smaller plot of land to grow the same amount of food as a traditional farm. So that's why it was first thought of kind of at the intersection between like urban studies and like how do we grow in like a city, utilize vertical space versus all of this like land management. 
and they produce or they've proven that crop yields produce about 10 times the traditional ways. So it actually is more effective when you're looking at how much food you can produce. Um, and it takes up less space for growing than because ver- um, vertical farming has a lower impact on uh, plants and animals, and local ecosystems. So even though it is siloed away from like what animals and plants are doing, you still um, are able to reduce space, which is a huge contributor to climate change. And it is kind of employing this new way of thinking, like Emma was saying with technology, where it's like, we're using cameras and sensors and algorithms to monitor plant growth, which is kind of like fucked from the perspective of like, you're losing your innate relationship to how the earth should work. Like we're so far removed from like crop rotations and seasons and all of that. Um, But it's also like, well, if it could be better, maybe we could do this. Um, And there's a few different types of vertical farming things. I won't get into it. If you want to look into like vertical farming shit, there's like hydroponic, aeroponic, hydroponic doesn't use soil. So that's another thing. If you've ever seen like weird photos of it, it's grown herbs and lettuce is grown in like a fabric, which is really weird. Um, And also indoor farming food has a different taste. So whenever you look at the lettuces, they do taste a little bit different as you can imagine. Um, Overall, the positives are like, you know, you have this protected variability from disaster, from this unknown climate future we live in. You don't have to worry about losing an entire season of lettuce because there was a drought. It saves space. So you're conserving the resources of things like the water, the fertilizer, and also the labor. And you can produce food year round because you are controlling the climate conditions. That's like the biggest, I would say, best like principle and the conserving space. Now, at the same time, like Emma was saying, the whenever you think about new technology, the first cost of like getting your first solar panel or getting your first vertical farm are really expensive. But then once the market like shifts that way, these technologies become a lot more equitable and affordable or become dominant, at least in the market. Like that's kind of what's happening with um, electric vehicles right now. If the government passes a clean electricity standard, for example, all the car manufacturers are going to have to change. Thus, like it's going to be equal in the market. But right now, yeah, the Teslas are probably a lot more expensive. I know nothing about cars, but this is just an example. Um, so some negatives of vertical farming is that it does have this high upfront cost. You would have to transfer the labor force into learning like how to manage these types of farms. And the only thing it's, it is limited where you only can grow leafy herbs and leafy greens. So that's one thing. The next area, which I am very interested in is because a lot of health gurus talk about farmed fish, which is aquaculture. And kind of the way that this intersects with climate change is that like, if we're going to eat more seafood in the next coming decades, most of it's going to have to come from fish farms um, and farm seafood, aquaculture are the same thing. And it's, it's going to become vital to support how much seafood we do eat. Um, you know, our nation does produce a lot of seafood. It provides year round jobs. It's, we help rebuild protected species along the coastlines and sort of like maintain these coastal habitats out there. And it's great for the economy. It does also help address food insecurity. Like fish is a huge uh, source of dealing with like food insecurity, specifically on the the coastlines. And the coastlines are also subject to a lot of pollution. As you can hear, like the mercury, you should always look out for different mercury levels in your fish. I remember when I was vegan, like before eating fish, it was always like, if you do eat fish, you eat a a credit card worth of plastic, you know? So that's one thing. If you do farm fishing, you can like cut out that risk of eating. However, they've shown that I think this is one point that like people like Mark Hyman bring up is like farm fish is so bad for you. You know, there has been studies that produce that uh, farm-raised varieties have are, are higher in some contaminants. So that is like 
one concern with farmed fish that we still don't know the answer to. But there are some bigger cons when it does come to like systems thinking. Um, it can indirectly do harm to the habitats where these fish are located. So you're still going to be using a lot of the shared resources on the coastlines and sort of altering how nature does um, does like interact naturally. Like you're still going to use water. You're still going to be you know thinking about all of that on the coastline. And it's very dangerous if a disease strikes within like a farm fishing facility because it could wipe out the entire fishing population within an aqua farm. So the only like real way to maintain that aquaculture is like just and actually produces the right results is that there needs to be strong governmental oversight. The main body in the United States is going to be NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, but there's plenty of other groups that like would also manage um, aquaculture. So it is a really cool, I think, area of thinking about like, if we do want to eat fish and we do know that our waters are getting polluted, now, once again, it is like this technocratic like zap of a solution that is just kind of like, really, we don't care about actually dealing with climate change. So we're going to go grow fish in these like controlled environments, you know. Um, the next one that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with is going to be artificial meat and sort of 3D food printing. 3D food printing is when like, you know, the machines or like the beyond meat, all that type of stuff, or like, I don't know, astronaut food. I'm trying to think of other like visual examples of it. Um, but food produced with 3D printings are going to give customers more options and also help with like dealing with food insecurity. It deals with lost ecosystems. So in, in the, um, we all know like the Great Barrier Reef is going, habitats are going extinct there. Researchers at the University of Sydney were at, at Sydney were actually printing 3D replicas of different corals that were in the Great Barrier Reef. So there are, there is like a way to deal with habitat extinction as well. Like if you're able to get a swab of some rare animal or coral there could be a technological solution to bring back extinct species once again uh the next thing of like how it relates to food at least is in japan the first instance of like the 3d food printing was dealing with uh, wagyu beef so they printed this 3d print of it using a technique called like marbling where you take the culture as a live tissue and replicate it and then at cornell um, a PhD candidate, Jeffrey Lipton, developed a 3D printer that ma makes like liquid versions of food. So it like puts different dots. I mean, you can Google like videos of like what 3D printing looks like. You'll probably stumble across a lot of weird shit, but they've been able to pr print out things like chocolate, cheese, hummus, scallops, just by like putting these dots and layers and layers together. Um, but I would say the biggest thing that 3D printing, it's not from the fact that like you can make all this cool food. You can, yes, but it is a huge reduction of carbon emissions. Like when you think about being able to grow, cook, prepare foods without the industrial impact of packaging, fertilizers, all of those unseen costs in the production chain, those would be entirely wiped out. And so the carbon footprint that we've like talked about in previous episodes, if you don't know, is like the greenhouse gas emissions. That is at all stages of the product life. And so when you're thinking about something like a gallon of milk, we don't often think about like, there's a lot of hidden factors, for example, like people are hit not really aware of the impact of transportation. The total carbon factor does actually care about like the materials used, the manufacturing processes. So 3D printing can cut those emissions that we often do not think about. Um, so that's one area that like we, is a potential policy intervention that's like super, super exciting. Um, yeah, when it comes to food tech. Yes, and I think kind of going back into like obviously artificial meat then kind of talking and thinking about like lab grown or culture meat, which is like actually real meat. 
because there is like so much push and so much talk I think with like a lot of like environmental groups that like we all need to just like stop eating meat blah 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 blah. but I don't personally think that that is like really practical like at all like so many cultures are so reliant and also it's like artificial meat like it's expensive and like I don't think it's like going to like solve the issue and I don't think like any of these like issues alone like isolated will solve the issue but lab grown and culture meat is it's been like talked about it's not really like on the market yet but yeah I was kind of like is this gonna be too graphic for some of our vegan listeners but also I'm like grow up you guys are fine <laughs> you we live uh, in a society like come on we live in a society yeah there's like literal slaughterhouses um yeah. but so like with lab grown and culture meat I think it's actually kind of like interesting from like a scientific perspective um but it's again creating real meat from cell lines and so how this works it's basically taking adult stem cells from a live animal so maybe like muscle or tissue fiber from a cow um, or like a chicken. And then through this, when they take the stem cells, the muscle is then like, or whatever cell they're taking is like chopped into smaller pieces. And then they're using enzymes to um, digest it. And then they release the stem cells. And these stem cells are then placed into a huge vat called a bioreactor. And this is like a very like highly controlled environment, which essentially like allows the cells to multiply drastically. So you're basically just kind of like, growing regrowing these cells like at a very like rapid pace and so then during this like growth process the stem cells differentiate into muscle fibers that are then bunched together and they also have um there's like other solutions that kind of help bind everything together and kind of like one of the things with like lab grown culture meat is that there's going to be less risk for contamination such as like e coli because there's no like digestive organs because like in slaughterhouses there is like a huge risk for cross-contamination with different like bacteria because like you're obviously dealing with like a lot of like unused parts from like an animal after it has been slaughtered and you know lab grown and culture meat I think a lot of people always question like is this even real food like is it still going to be healthy it's still going to be like quote-unquote healthy because like scientists are like able to kind of swap out like different components and really kind of um play around and almost create it into like a science project for when like they are developing these lab meats so they can take the saturated fats and then replace them with like omega-3s or add in additional micronutrients, whether that's like, you know, vitamin B12, et cetera, like you find, you know, with cereals when they're fortified with different micronutrients. Um, but again, there are limitations and like being able to scale this and make it cost-effective. I know that like the first like lab grown meat that was like ever created, it like literally cost like a hundred thousand dollars or something like insane for like someone to buy. Um, but I think it is like, you know, an area where I think again, if there is like government intervention and like, you know, there is like an incentive and they are able to scale it, this would be a great way a, to kind of like reduce the reliance on, you know, traditional um, raising of cows and slaughtering because like, you know, CFAOs are like a huge transmitter of um, emissions and also just like takes up so much land space. And that is like be- land has become such a scarce um, um, resource nowadays with just like, you know, us growing as a society. So I think this is something that like, I feel like we'll probably see become more prevalent, but also it's going to be difficult for lab grown meat to compete with like alternative meats since like these are already on the market and already being produced. Um, So I think this is definitely like an area to kind of keep your eye on because I do kind of foresee this becoming more mainstream in the years to come. Yeah. And I think with this whole section of food tech, there's definitely two approaches. There are the vegan alternatives that are trying to be like meat, be a substitute, be like Impossible Burger, be beyond. But then this whole food tech area is literally trying to mimic it. It is trying to be it, but just in a more climate friendly or climate neutral way, if we want to say climate neutral. 
Um, one company that I stumbled across is this Barcelona-based company called Nova Meat. And their kind of ethos is that like people shouldn't eat alternative meats just for the environment or the animals or health. It should also be a superior quality to what you're getting if you are just going to go out and eat meat. So they use like a 3D printing process that's like 155 times faster than their competitors. So they can make like all this meat substitute per hour. And they take mammalian fat cells. So like from an animal to make this biocompatible plant-based scaffold. And that's one thing that a lot of um, like meat eaters will say, like, I don't want to go eat tofu. I can't get the same like amino acid profile or just health profile if you do really want meat or something like that, or I don't want to be B12 deficient. So I think that is one area where like the technology, like I was saying, you can seriously address like getting a full nutrient profile. And it's not like we're all just going to be eating chickpeas for the rest of our life. But the biggest struggle is like a lot of these um, cell-based meat things, they're really on like small scales. And so making really large size of like hybrid meat, it's called, is really difficult. And like the texture is still coming along. The taste is like not really there yet. Um, but that brings us to our next big fighter, which is like the Beyond Meat Impossible Burger thing. So like my perspective on this, like everyone has their own probably like interaction or introduction to these guys. There is this rising consumer demand for people to care about their individual carbon footprint, like whatever. My own perspective is like individuals are not going to be the way out of it. It is individuals exerting pressure on corporations and governments to make these policy interventions more, you know, effective. You can't ask an everyday working person to go buy tofu and eat tofu if one, tofu is crazy expensive, two, they don't know, they don't like tofu, they don't know how to cook with tofu, like it has to be government-led first. And so with like the Beyond Meat Impossible Burger, that's not the solution out of climate change. It's not equitable. Who can afford to eat it? Who even has, who even sees it at the grocery store, right? Like Emma and I both live in New York. Yeah, I see it. Do I buy it? Never have. It's also not addressing the intersecting crises of like a public health response. So like Emma was saying, obesity, just like chronic disease in the United States. I'm not going to say they're good for you or bad for you health-wise. I'm not a doctor, but just like thinking about the health response as well when we are creating like alternatives. Um, that's another area that I think is just like undiscussed too. And I think the only way that like Beyond and Impossible Burger can really make a significant impact is if it threatens animal agriculture to the extent that that is like wiped out. I'm talking about factory farms. I'm talking about like the big three. I'm talking about like corn, soy, wheat. If they are able to shift the consumer demand so much that people are absolutely not buying from factory farms, then yeah, I guess it does make a difference. It can convince meat eaters to make alternatives. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying at where we are with climate change, if we don't get our shit together by 2030, everyone, I don't, you can't be on burger your way out of it. Right. Yeah. And, and you should not feel like your, your dollar is everything that matters. That whole campaign is created by BP oil in the eighties to make individuals feel like they need to do shit. People, I think we're in politics, especially with food choices, using choices with air quotes, it's narrated in this vision of like neglect and, or not ne neglect, but it's doom and gloom. We're all fucked. We all have to go eat tofu now. And I keep using tofu as an example because I just feel like I'm, I'm not a big tofu fan. Use your favorite, like think of your grossest vegan alternative, diet cheese. <laughs> Sorry, Daya. Um, it, it is narrated in this politics of just doom and gloom and giving up your favorite things. It's not like, wow, if we shifted over our energy supply to not use fossil fuels, we could eat meat and we could eat whatever the fuck you wanted to. Like, it's not actually about the consumer product. It's more about these unseen processes we don't talk about that are a lot more difficult to address.
Um, so I hope that makes people feel optimistic about it. Like, yeah. yes, do your part, yada, yada, yada. But like, no, it's a system systemic. Don't change. feel guilty if you do eat meat and don't feel guilty if you like, don't like beyond meat. Again, we're not gonna be able to eat our way out of climate change. So like, I think like, honestly, taking less pressure off of you individually is like a huge thing. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to kind of touch on like two other, like kind of emerging, um, like different brands that are kind of like out in the market. Cause again, there's like new things popping up here and here and there, like every single day. One is Voyage Foods. I discovered them on this uh, website called Thing Testing, which is like a very fun place to discover new startups, but they are a new startup. I think they're based in Silicon Valley. Don't quote me on that, but they are basically producing society's favorite foods and drinks without contributing to industries that do kind of have like negative environmental and social implications. And so really what they're doing is transforming natural ingredients, such as like seeds and grains into nutritionally identical versions of food, such as chocolate, peanut butter, and coffee. And I'm sure that whatever episode we did, our last kind of like food and climate change episode, like, I think it was like food on like a rising and a rising climate or whatever. Um, kind of talking about how like chocolate and coffee are kind of like experiencing huge threats and that like in X amount of years, you know, our coffee could be $8 because it is like so expensive to produce because of climate change. And also like with chocolate, it may become like a scarce thing and may be able, may even become like more um, like glorified as like caviar because it'll be so hard for us to acquire. Um, And so really they're kind of like focusing on like certain like foods that we all know and love today and trying to kind of mimic and recreate versions of it that are going to be less um, harmful to the environment. And there's their, their products aren't on the market yet. I know that they are launching a peanut butter, which will be their first product sometime in the fall. Supposedly they are backed by like a lot of like investors. Um, but really kind of like their like, again, like goal is that, you know, climate change again is going to threaten the ability to safely source and produce these foods. And so really thinking about like how we can still have these foods in the future, but just in a different way. I'm interested to see how this goes again, like who will have access to all the, to these alternatives. Like what is the price going to be? Is it scalable? I think also it's like, you're going to have to have like multiple companies that are doing the same thing in order for this to be accessible to a lot of people. And then another brand, which I'm sure people have maybe seen here and there is the not milk. It's like that vegan non-dairy milk that I have seen have never purchased. They are based in Latin America. And I think what's interesting from them is that like they utilize like artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms to mimic animal-based foods with plant-based ingredients. And so again, it's kind of similar to Beyond Meat where it's like really seeking to create an alternative that is as close to the real thing. So I don't think that like, like kind of like how I view like Beyond Meat and like, you know, this not milk is like, is this like actually necessary? Like if we're trying to like fully mimic like the exact taste of like the real thing. And like, if it is kind of like creating the same amount of perhaps like environmental um, emissions, et cetera, as like the real thing, like, does this like need to exist? But the not milk is made from like cabbage juice, sunflower oil, et cetera, which ingredients that I never really think about when purchasing milk. But I think again, just kind of like really seeing like the power of technology and like how it can produce and create new foods, because it's like, honestly, I don't think any of us ever expected that like artificial intelligence and algorithms would be like producing milk for us. I thought it would just be as simple as like milking an almond, putting it in a blender and straining it. Yeah. And this kind of gets the tension I was saying before with like technological solutions is that they don't make significant enough systemic changes to address the climate, address climate change at the pace we need. So I think food can be a policy solution. It definitely has to be in order for us to 
make a difference, just thinking about how much animal agriculture does contribute to GHG emissions. However, like 3D printing is not going to be the thing that does just like fix food scarcity. It wouldn't do it fast enough, quick enough, get it to everyone. You know, it's too expensive right now to help 80 million people that are food insecure. And like, it is kind of just like, you're, you're, you're playing with fire, right? Like you are acting in this dominant white patriarchal male environment where like, I know more than mother nature does like, fuck the earth. We're just going to go make lab grown meat instead of dealing with the fact that we actually have just kicked indigenous people off of the ways of tending the land. Like that is the, the more difficult root issue that people don't want to touch. And that's everything in politics. It's like, yeah, we don't deal with like systemic issues that are affecting like people of color. And we're just going to go like put like some fluffy thing up. Like that's typically how politics works, which is unfortunate. Um, the next section is getting into health stuff. So like, what the hell is this food even good for you? I think it's definitely, it's going to be to really, truly know like the effects of like eating beyond meat every single day or like different kind of like more processed, um, meat alternatives. Cause I, you know, tofu has been around for years and years and years. Um, but I think again, like kind of what I was touching on with like the lab grown meat is that, you know, scientists are able to fully gain control over like the end product of these like things that they are creating in the lab again. So like through the fat content, replacing saturated fatty acids with omega threes, increasing the protein content. So there can be more protein, um, you know, found in these, you know, lab grown foods, et cetera. But, you know, it's kind of hard to tell. And I think like, again, like the one reason why a lot of people probably don't like to eat alternative meats like Kate said is because that doesn't have like full amino acid profile. Maybe it has like added oils, et cetera. And so I think with like, you know, the rise of technologies, it can be interesting to see like if we are able to improve the quality of certain foods. I think especially like I would love to be able to see, you know, like improving the quality of just like of like produce in general. Cause so much, you know, you always see like those infographics where it's like, you have to eat like twice the amount of broccoli to acquire the same amount of nutrients as you would like, you know, 50 years ago. So I think like, I would rather want to see, you know, these technologies being used to like improve like the health of the soil and like the actual produce, as opposed to like creating these new like foods that don't really need to exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like the other areas of like health, or I guess like other random shit is like the repurposing food waste, which kind of ties into the next segment is like, the overall question I think this podcast is like, should we look to technology or just go back to old ways, like i.e. regenerative agriculture and just really thinking about like what needs to be scaled with climate change? Because one, the price, um, cultured meat, laboratory meat, any of the stuff we talked about in this episode, everything's in its very experimental stages and it's very expensive. You're also going to be relying on the market to shift. And like a lot of the times, if you look in history, when we wait for the free market to do the right thing, it pretty much does not ever. So by the time that let's say VC investors, not even that, but politics changes too. Okay. We might've already lost time on climate change. Right. So I think some ways this technology is good. Some ways it's bad. One of the ways that I do think it's good back to food waste is that one third of the calories produced go to food waste, either in the production process or the waste process. Like we all know that this happens in highly industrialized, rich countries and if we, fig- if we could figure out how to put nutrients towards 3D printing that could make a big impact on production or sustainability measures, like if you were able to transform food waste into biodegradable plastic, there was this one startup I was looking into um, that was like taking the food waste and put- making this into something else. 
that's a great policy solution. Like that is dealing with the fact that we do waste food. Now you'd have to also get people to care about wasting food. Like that's the, the root of the issue, but this is just dealing with the waste. Um, but I don't, I just think there's so many like political funding and regulatory issues to getting this to scale to like this food technology being the revolution, you know, livestock farmers, like Emma was saying in the beginning of the podcast, they, it threatens their jobs right now. It's, we're not going to be able to get rid of conventional production overnight. And so cultured meat is only going to go so far. Um, so I think it does have to, you know, deal with everyone from the bottom to the top and thinking about equity too. like, are these technologies going to be accessible either is another question. Yes. All very interesting. Will be fun to, you know, witness as the years come along. Um, you know, maybe we could, I'm thinking of some fun food text we would want to see, um, you know, some new potatoes. Let's make some new sweet potatoes. What, is, what, would about- you want, what would you want your new sweet potato to look like, Kate? <laughs> or taste like? I don't know. New funky color. Just like some yeah. new spell for the bowl. You know, thinking, I we always talk about there's nothing, there's no new foods. There's no new foods. <laughs> Well, you know, there's plenty of technologies out there. Someone who is smart maybe has a PhD and whatever the fuck. You go solve that issue for us. Kate and I will solve other issues in the health and wellness world. You go make us some new potatoes. Um, go make me a new, a new leafy green, a new fruit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll give you a list. Yes, please. That's we'll all compile, I ask for. We'll compile data from the sea muscarlies and then we will get a list of food and we all go live on an island together. How about that? That sounds like the dream. Um, but yeah, that's the episode. I hope you guys like liked it. I feel like you probably, I hope you learned something from this and kind of, again, thinking like big picture when it comes to a lot of things in the, you know, intersection of, you know, food and climate change. I think that is something that it's not talked about as much as it should be. Correct. And we hope that we can educate you in a fun, informative way. And it's not too boring. Um, if we got a little nerd on you, sorry, not sorry. Y'all got brains and you deserve to learn some stuff. So yeah. I am going to go pee. <laughs> what are you going to do after this podcast ends? I'm also going to pee. I need to buy moisturizer. Um, nice. Like I have just been using face oil because I have been avoiding Sephora at all costs because the idea of going to Sephora and Soho makes me want to um, cry. Yeah. But you guys, then, you, know, you never ask, you never ask two girl boss podcasters about how difficult it is to not have to pee. And we do it every time. We do. Always make sure you pee before girlies. But yeah. thank you for listening to episode 50, you know, 50 more till 100. And then who knows? Whoa, craziness. Um, okay. Bye. We love you, CMS girlies. Bye. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off.
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.